Hi guys. I really miss being with you all, but I'm really thankful also that I had the opportunity to record this teaching from Mark chapter 13 uh, today. And I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will use this exposition of God's Word to encourage and bless you in this particular time. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that in this time of social distancing that we're in right now, and kind of my routine is just all blown up, and I can easily forget which day it is unless I look at a calendar. And so I want to remind you all, and I want to remind myself that this Sunday is Palm Sunday, which begins Holy Week. And so next Friday is actually Good Friday. Uh, this is a time where we normally do not have a men's breakfast, so there will not be a men's breakfast teaching posted on the website next Friday. But I, I have another thought in mind that I would like to consider and invite you to join me in kind of an experiment. We've been doing some of these uh, WebEx video conference small groups, and so it's it's really kind of easy if you have the uh, can download the WebEx app to either your your computer or to your device, your iPad, your phone. And what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm not going to have slides this week like I might normally have that would be posted on a screen behind me. As you can see, I don't really have a screen behind me. Uh, but I will post some slides on the uh, website right beside of the, the video link, just so that you can have a couple of notes maybe if you want to follow along, get the big idea there. And at the very last page of those notes, what I want to do is uh, give you a little bit of an instructions on how to get the WebEx app. And I'm going to give you a code number there that's going to be like my own private personal WebEx room. And so if you want to join me next week, this will tell you how you can join up with me. And I'm going to open the meeting up like at 7 o'clock in the morning, maybe a few minutes before 7. And if, if you want to uh, get online, I don't know how many of you might want to, but however many would be great. We can uh, share a little bit about what's going on. We we can give some testimonies of how God's faithfulness has been manifest. And we can pray for one another and pray, pray for our neighbors, pray for our church and, and our, our country and pray, pray for our world. So if that's something that maybe in, in lieu of the normal Friday morning men's breakfast, since we don't have it next week, you'd like to do, I invite you to go to the slides and get the instructions. If you need to, just give me a call or, or give me an email and I'll be happy to help you how to, to, to do that. Um, chapter 13 of Mark is, is going to be our text here today. And th this chapter can be a, a bit of a, a complicated chapter because it's the longest discourse that we find Jesus giving in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and it's also a little complicated because Jesus delves into prophecy here. He's prophesying about the destruction of the temple, and he's also prophesying about his return, the second coming. And again, his disciples don't even really understand that he's leaving exactly yet. And so, but Mark has been uh, writing this now probably 30-something uh, years after Jesus. So his readers know Jesus left, and they need to be encouraged that he actually is planning to return. And, and so as, as we look at Mark chapter 13, I'm going to try to be honest with you. Uh, about the things that I just don't understand, the things that I don't believe are clear in the passage, that a lot of godly scholars who are smarter than I uh, don't understand and don't necessarily agree with one another about. I I'm also going to try to give you my best shot of being honest with you about what I think God is trying to say to us through the passage, one of the, really the, the big idea is we have. And 
I want to really focus then on being crystal clear where I believe God is crystal clear here in, in Mark chapter 13. We want to really drive home those parts that we can know with certainty. So the, ironically, it seems that uh, as we look at prophecy that was written 2,000 years ago, it's easy for us to be tempted to try to jump and go right into our current modern day context and so if Jesus is talking about false prophets, we may say, oh, yeah, there's false prophets out there today. The news media, a bunch of false prophets. Politicians are a bunch of false prophets, false teachers. We got them on the TV. Uh, when we talk about tribulation, uh, as we will be talking about in, in Mark chapter 13, uh, we, we may think, oh, yeah, this COVID-19 uh, disease, this is really a great tribulation. And in many ways, this could be a tribulation. It is a tribulation for a number of people. But it's very dangerous when we skip 2,000 years uh, and just try to take a prophecy that was meant perhaps for some other context as well and try to pour it into our context. Uh, sometimes that can be very dangerous. I want to avoid that danger here this morning. So we will look a little bit of history and we'll try to be responsible in our hermeneutic as, as we then figure out how this might apply to us uh, where we are today here in Williamsburg or even around the world. Uh, some of the most difficult words that we find in Mark 13, some of the most confusing parts actually come from the mouth of Jesus himself. As he, he's talking about the, the destruction of the temple, he's talking about the second coming. And uh, sometimes it seems like the two get so intermixed, it's hard to tell which one he happens to be, be talking about at that, that moment. So I'd like you to, to turn in your Bibles with me, if you, you would. We're going to be opening up to Mark chapter 13. And beginning with, with verse 1, um, we're going to see that even though these words are difficult, the Holy Spirit saw fit to put them in the Bible. Uh, they've been preserved for all, all these centuries. And so we, we have the, the gift of having them in God's Word here today. So they must be pretty important. So we're, we're going to ask God to uh, help us to understand those words that he found important enough to safeguard for us for these 2,000 years. Father, thank you for um, your Word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers and teaches us the truth, reminds us of the truth of, about all things. Uh, we, we depend upon you this time to, to ins not only inspire us, but to illuminate us, Lord, to, to let us understand these words that, that you have uh, preserved and that Jesus spoke to his disciples on that uh, last week of his life. So please give us clarity and, and, and give us uh, encouragement Give us power, Father, that we might apply these words with boldness and courage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the setting for this particular passage is the Passover week. Um, this was the third Passover that Jesus uh, experienced during his public ministry. Uh, since he was baptized and began his public ministry, and so there's a cycle of Mark shows all three of these Passovers in the uh, gospel here. This is the final one in which Jesus is actually going to become the Passover lamb who takes away the, the sin of the world. So if you would uh, open your Bibles or devices, we'll begin with chapter 13, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? 
there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say, but whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, parenthesis, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we open up that passage in the very first verse, Mark 1, uh, 13, 1, it says, And Jesus came out of the temple. I find, find it interesting here that uh, Mark first recorded Jesus going into the temple on what was apparently this one single day, all the way back in chapter 11, verse 27, where it says, Jesus and his disciples had returned to Jerusalem and were walking in the temple. It, it seems that everything from 1127 up to 131 happened on one day in the temple. And during that one day, it was a rough day for Jesus. Uh, it, it was a day when the religious leaders not only opposed him, but they tested him and they tried to trap him in what he said. And the very day before this looks to be the day that Jesus went into the temple and, and he turned all the money tables uh, over for the money changers and he kicked out all those who were buying and, and selling. And he said, 
My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so Jesus was not uh, winning over a lot of uh, friends as he uh, went to the temple these couple of days here and and faced up to, to the Jewish establishment. And after two successive days of conflict with these Jewish leaders in the temple, now as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples remarks on just how wonderful the stones are, how wonderful the buildings are. And it, it did seem to be quite the, the structure here. This was a, a, a remodeling, if you will, or a, a new renovation by, by King Herod, who had begun this project uh, a couple of decades before Jesus was even born. And the whole complex of the temple wasn't fully constructed and finished until about 60 or so AD, uh, just years before it ended up being destroyed. The, the Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus writes about the temple. Here's what he says. Now, the temple was built of stones that were white and strong, and each of their length was 25 cubits, and their height was 8, and, and the breadth was about 12. Now, cubits about 18 inches. That's so about from your elbow to your hand. I got a pretty long one there, so I would, I would have an extra long cubit. Um, not bragging, just fact. But these uh, walls, if we look at that, would be 37 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. That's a, a monumental stone. Uh, that may help explain why it took 10 years just to complete the very first main building here. And the construction then went about 60 years before everything was complete, even 30 years after Jesus. So it, it was a very, very impressive structure. Now, when... The disciples are marveling at how wonderful it is, how impressive it is. And then Jesus gives them this response that, you know, look at how beautiful it is. Yeah, but not one stone is going to be left upon uh, another. When they're talking about this and he, he says that it's going to all be thrown down, uh, now he had their attention. They, they could not imagine how this could be or why that it might be. For them, it would be pretty much tantamount to the, the end of the, of the world as they, they knew it. And so if... if we examine the, the discourse that Jesus gave in, in his response to them. We find that Jesus really didn't answer their questions all that clearly. Um, the first thing that Jesus does is he tells his disciples, he said, you guys are going to encounter a lot of tribulation. Uh, and you're also going to encounter false messiahs. And between these two things, between the tribulation and the false messiahs, they're, they're going to be at, coming at you to deceive you and to try to lead you astray. Actually, in 13.5, Jesus gives this warning. He says, see that no one leads you astray. That's, that seems to be preeminent on his mind. Then in verse uh, 6, in verse 22 of chapter 13, Jesus adds that, that many people actually will be led astray. Uh, they, they, they will be deceived and they will go astray. But Jesus is making sure that his disciples are not among that crowd who goes astray. He says that there, there will be false messiahs who actually perform signs and wonders and have these signs of power. The second thing that is uh, pretty clear that Jesus, I think, uh, gives to his disciples here is that in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of all these false messiahs and false prophets, Jesus' disciples were going to be able to bear witness to him before governors and kings and, and rulers. Uh, they were, they were going to be able to, to share the gospel uh, as a part of this, getting the gospel to all the nations before Jesus' return. So I want to give you the big idea here for this, this message. And again, this will be on one of the slides. 
and that is that Jesus prepares his disciples for unimaginable tribulation by focusing on his mission more than on their survival. Let that sink in just a moment. Jesus uh, prepares his disciples for unimaginable tribulation uh, by focusing them on his mission more than on their own survival. The entire discourse in Mark chapter 13 was part of that preparation for their mission. It was the continuation of Jesus's mission. So how did Jesus answer the disciples' questions about when the temple would be destroyed and, and about how they could know that it was about to, to happen? Uh, how were things about to go bad? And Jesus says, the first thing he says is, many will come in my name and they're going to claim to be the Messiah. But that's not the end time. That's not it. And he says, there are going to be wars and wars, and there are going to be more wars, and there are going to be rumors of wars, but that's not the time either. He says, there's going to be lots of earthquakes. Earth's going to tremble and shake, but that's not the end time either. And he says, there are going to be famines, and lots of people are going to go without food, but that's not the time either. He says, all of these things. All these bad things that I've just mentioned, he says, are, are just the beginning. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. And, and he warns that things are going to get really, really bad to the point that brothers are going to kill their brothers. Parents are going to kill their children. Children are going to kill their parents. This is pretty depressing stuff. Because if the, if the wars don't get you, if the earthquakes don't get you, if the famines don't kill you, then you've got to deal with your own family members who might. So in, in verse 13, Jesus warned that, Virtually anybody who's not a disciple of his is going to hate everybody who is a disciple of his just because they're a disciple of Jesus. Now, he talks about all these horrifying things, these realities that are going to take place. And he said it's going to get really, really, really bad. But all the while, he never really tells them when it's going to get so bad. And he doesn't really give them a clear indication of what they can look for to know that it's about to start, that's really going to heat up things. The, the challenge with interpreting the prophetic parts of Mark 13, again, is that Jesus seems to be talking about two different events. One is the destruction of the temple, and the other is the, the promise of his return. And the two seem to be so mixed in the discourse that they're, they're interconnected, and it's hard to figure out sometimes which one is which. And in verse 14, uh, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Luke has a little bit of a different version here. And Luke adds, when you see armies and horses around Jerusalem, then it's time to flee. And, and there, it seems that there was a time when the armies came and a number of people did flee to the mountains, and, and they did seem to survive uh, that. But is, is we see this idea of the abomination of desolation. It's probably not a phrase that you use very often in, in your daily conversations, unless maybe you're a Washington Redskins fan or a Baltimore Orioles fan, and you say, wow, that was an abomination of desolation. Did you see that game? Uh, other than that, it's probably not a common thing. The, the abomination of desolation is this phrase that is used in Daniel, it's used in uh, Matthew, it's used in Mark, and it's in the apocryphal book of the book of Maccabees also. The, the abomination is some form, believed, of pagan idolatry that is set up inside of the temple. 
make sure I get my screen back there. Hope you didn't lose me. Um, the abomination is this idolatry that's set up uh, inside of the temple. And it's something that so disgusts and offends God's people that they won't even go into the temple because of this abomination that's there. So the temple becomes desolate for them. Um, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, speaks of someone profaning the temple by an abomination that, that makes it desolate. Um, many scholars believe Daniel 11.31 was fulfilled by the, the Syrian uh, ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who actually came into Jerusalem, went into the temple, erected an altar there to the god Zeus, put a, put a statue of Zeus that was sort of in the likeness of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes himself in there, and then he proceeded to sacrifice a pig, one of the uh, offensive animals to the Jewish people, uh, on the altar in the, the temple of, of the Lord God. And so uh, Jesus spoke of this abomination of desolation around AD 30. Antiochus Epiphanes did his uh, altar to Zeus and sacrificed the pig in 167 BC. So we're, we're, we're talking about 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes. So, so he definitely wasn't talking about that abomination of desolation, but his readers... Uh, and his hearers then, those Jewish hearers, would have understood that abomination of desolation to be someone coming in and, and, and really uh, defacing the temple, uh, of, of taking this holy place and, and, and making it corrupted and profane. And so Jesus was then talking about sometime in the future in which there would be an abomination of desolation. Now, it's, it's Hunter shared when we began this series back in September of last year we believe that Mark wrote this gospel from the city of Rome. We also believe that he wrote it sometime between the years 63 and 70 AD. Um, I kind of believe it was closer to 64, 65, but uh, it's somewhere in that little window. Jews in Jerusalem, we know, began a revolt in the year 66 AD. They, they rioted and defeated the Roman soldiers that were there on the streets in Jerusalem and then when another detachment of Roman soldiers from Syria was sent over to sort of quell the uprising, uh, the zealots and the Jewish folks were able to defeat that detachment of Roman soldiers as well. So they were starting to feel it like, you know, we maybe can, can take on these Romans. And they were get, getting a little puffed up. And the emperor then in, in AD 70 sends a large uh, cadre of soldiers there to Jerusalem, a, a large force. They ended up breaking through the walls of the city. And in the process of all the violence that was going on with torches, one of them got thrown up onto the temple and the temple became uh, on fire and the, the temple was actually uh, completely burned out. Uh, we don't know if that was intentional or just a casualty of war, but it, it was. And then after that, the walls were knocked down stone by stone. And this fulfilled then what Jesus had said in Mark 13, two, when he told his disciples, it's like at least 37 years earlier, uh, that not one stone would be left on top of another. Question for interpretation, though, uh, arises. Was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD the abomination of desolation that Jesus had said was going to come? Um, this is where a lot of godly Christians 
cannot really come to agreement, can't, can't really come to clarity on this. Some would say, yes, the temple was thrown down. Roman flags were put up in the place of the temple. That was an abomination of having these pagan Romans come in, destroy the temple, and then put their flag uh, where the temple was. Uh, others would say, no, 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 that didn't really have to do specifically with idolatry. So before the abomination of desolation can, can occur, there has to be another temple rebuilt now in Jerusalem in order for that abomination of desolation to actually take place. And again, godly Christians disagree about this. Godly Christians also disagree ab about uh, the tribulation. Uh, what was this tribulation about which Jesus was, was speaking here? We've seen some terrible, terrible atrocities and tribulations over the course of church history. In the 1300s, we saw uh, millions and millions of people dying from bubonic plague. Uh, we've seen over the years scores and scores of millions of people who have been killed by political atrocities and tyrants. Um, actually, we've seen so many martyrs uh, in the church over the course of church history. And it's not just the early church martyrs. Uh, we actually saw more than twice as many martyrs between 1900 and 2000 as we saw between the years 33 when Jesus died to the year 1900. More than twice as many martyrs in our, our more contemporary modern world today. You and I have seen photos, uh, perhaps, of Christians beheaded by ISIS members on a beach. And the sad truth is that we have brothers and sisters around the world today who will pay the ultimate price for following Jesus and calling him Lord. Uh, we will lose brothers and sisters today to martyrdom because they follow Jesus. There's been no shortage of tribulation in our fallen world. Now, the, the early church had a robust theology of suffering and martyrdom. Uh, the church today in, in China, the church today in Sudan, Saudi Arabia, other places of extreme tribulation and persecution, these churches have a robust theology of suffering and martyrdom, and they prepare their disciples for the day in which they may potentially be martyred. Even Islam has a robust theology of suffering and martyrdom. But guys, if we're honest, the church in the United States, the church in the Western world, we do not have such a robust theology of suffering and martyrdom. Jesus said that there was going to be a time of tribulation that was coming that would be so widespread and so terrible that it would be unmatched both in its terror and in its scope. He said no human was even going to survive without the Lord God intervening, intervening to, to cut that tribulation shorter uh, so that some might uh, live. Now, again, Christians disagree about the abomination of desolation. They also disagree about the timing of the tribulation. They also disagree about who's going to go through the tribulation and who may be spared from the tribulation. There's just so much more that could be said about these differences, but I just don't find saying these differences as being all that productive, honestly. Uh, honestly, I fear that Christians sometimes debate those issues that are not crystal clear and we totally gloss over the parts that are. So in, in looking at our passage here in Mark 13, in the context of the chapters that were just before it, 
Mark was showing that the religious establishment represented by the temple with these Jewish leaders, they were not only missing the fact that their Messiah was Jesus and that he was there in their midst, but they opposed him and they wanted to kill him and they eventually did kill him. That was the setup. That was the setup for Jesus saying not one stone of this magnificent building, this temple, would be left standing one upon another. What Jesus was doing here, he was reframing the whole idea of the temple and its importance to his disciples. He was changing their way of looking at the temple as a place of sacrifice and a place where God was supposed to dwell. Because Jesus knew that he was going to become this ultimate sacrifice as the Passover lamb. Uh, the temple was going to be destroyed, and he was going to make his followers, his church, a new temple. As Paul talks about, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? They're not your own. So this, the body of Christ becomes this living temple now where God abides, and we no longer have any sacrifices necessary for our sins or our salvation. The only sacrifices we offer are sacrifices of praise and worship to our King who has saved us already. So this was the setup for Jesus changing the way when he went out of the temple there and he said not one stone is going to be left. He was saying the temple is no longer going to be the main focus of my disciples' religious activity. It certainly would not have been the main focus of the Gentile uh, readers to whom Mark was addressing his gospel either. Uh, the physical temple of Jerusalem was going to be replaced by the Holy Spirit indwelling believers as a new temple of God, which would be the church with the capital C made up of all true believers. So when the disciples would later actually visually see that Jerusalem had been breached, the walls had been torn down again, that the temple had been burned, it had been taken down one stone, taken down after another stone, not one left upon the other. Uh, when, they, when they saw that was actually a reality uh, they, they would not be alarmed. They would, they would not think that the world was coming to an end. They would remember that Jesus told them this actually was going to happen. And it was just the beginning of the bad stuff that was going to happen. It was certainly not the end. The, the purpose of this whole discourse of, of, of Jesus was to provide uh, his disciples with some training. It wasn't to provide them details about the future. It was to provide them assurance uh, that Jesus would return, and it was to encourage them to be faithful in the process, to not be deceived, to not be led astray. His first concern was that his disciples, again, uh, that the hardship and tribulation might somehow cause them to give up. When things get hard, they say, I just don't know if it's worth it. Is Jesus really going to come back like he said he was going to come back? It seems like the bad people are flourishing and the Christians are dying. Maybe I need to switch teams. Uh, you know, so... That was one of his concerns about the hardships and tribulations. The other concern that he had, though, was about the false prophets and the false teachers, uh, the false messiahs. Um, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that, that they would be beaten and that they would be put on trial and they would possibly be killed. So when that time came, they would not be surprised by it and they would not run from it, but they would know that they were there by his ordained purpose to bear witness to the gospel of his kingdom as a part of seeing that all nations of every people, nation, tribe, and tongue have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that during those most difficult and darkest times for them personally, they would be able to shine for his mission. 
In Mark 13, 9, Jesus said his disciples would stand before governors and kings and that they would, he says, it would be for my sake to bear witness before them. This to bear witness before them is a purpose clause. It's like this is the very reason they're going through the tribulation is to be able to bear witness to governors and kings and nations around the world. And I'm always impressed when I see this word witnesses uh, pertaining to, to us as we can sometimes take it kind of lightly. Um, witness is that Greek word martyrios, which is the more literal transliteration of our word martyr. We got that English word martyr that used to mean witness because so many witnesses for Jesus lost their lives in being faithful to share the gospel. Now, Jesus said he would not return before his mission of gospel proclamation was complete. Verse 10 of chapter 13. Before I come back, he says, uh, all the nations need to be able to hear the gospel. The gospel will be preached, must be first proclaimed to all the nations. So in, in addition to warning, warning his disciples about the hardships that they would not be led astray, Jesus mentions a second concern uh, about their going astray. And he says, false messiahs can come, false prophets will come, claiming to be Jesus, but don't you believe him? Verse uh, 22, false Christ and prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, we don't have to get into this idea of election predestination in this message here, but I think we can all agree upon that the elect are those who are truly saved. And the truly saved are, uh, would be in that category that Jesus is talking about when he says the elect. So what Jesus is actually saying here is this, the elect are not going to be deceived and led astray. Uh, that's not going to happen to those who are truly saved. And it goes back to the verse earlier where he said, those who endure to the end will be saved. This gives us our wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that is that those who are, are saved, those who are truly believers of Jesus, will endure and persevere to the end of their lives. Now, Jesus spoke these words just a few days before he would be crucified. And he, he, he wanted his disciples to know that in the midst of this indescribable tribulation, in, in the midst of false Christ and false prophets all over the place coming around, he would be using them to take his gospel to every nation and people group on the face of the earth. Guys, Christian discipleship is not uh, giving us the option of a choice. Well, I, I want to be the, the serving disciple, or I want to be the suffering disciple. The, 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 the two are wed together. Uh, they were wed together in Jesus' life. And as we, we think about our, our theme for this series of, of learning the, the Gospel of Mark teaches us to suffer and to serve like our, our Savior, um, we, we can't pick and choose. They just go hand in hand. Jesus suffered as he served. And we see that as he suffered on the cross, he provided his greatest service of bringing atonement and forgiveness of sins. You and I, at times, as we serve faithfully in a context where people may not be favorable toward us, uh, we will likely encounter some suffering. That's not a cause to stop serving. That's a cause to continue serving and to continue proclaiming the gospel. And as we suffer, when we serve, we may actually receive a greater platform for even more service and more gospel proclamation. Uh, I believe the message of Mark 13, 1 to 23, is uh, super relevant right now as we and the rest of the world face the COVID-19 pandemic. 
in, in a very real sense, the entire world is going through a time of, of tribulation. Uh, people suffering economically, people suffering physically. Their world's just been turned upside down or put on hold. And what Jesus wants to tell us today is, you know, in the midst of this, don't let the hardship uh, cause you to doubt. Don't don't let the false prophets, the false messiahs, deceive you and to lead you astray. Do not be led astray by anyone. And guys. Let's see if we can deepen our theology to make it a little more robust when it comes to suffering and to martyrdom. Uh, Jesus has has called us to be faithful witnesses for him, come what may. And the big idea to close out on here again, Jesus prepares his disciples for unimaginable tribulation by focusing on his mission more than on their survival. Uh, we don't have to worry beforehand, he says, what we're even going to say. He says, because the Holy Spirit in you is going to, to speak through you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture that's uh, challenging in how to interpret. But thank you for the clear nuggets that we can draw from it and have complete confidence, Lord, that they are uh, at the core of your heart. We pray, Father, that uh, come what may, we, we would be faithful Uh, to you, that we would not be deceived, we would not be led astray, and that we would be your instruments in helping other people not to be deceived or led astray for your glory and for for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, uh, it's great to see you, or for you to see me, Um, and maybe we can connect uh, next Friday morning on the WebEx. If you have any questions, give me a call. God bless.